Welcome to another episode. Today we've got an epic interview lined up. I'm so hyped. We have a uh, Bitcoin uh, thought leader, creator, legend, Nick Carter on the line. Nick Carter, what's up? Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me, man. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm such a big fan of all the research you're doing. Um, and it's just been really cool to follow your content. So I can't wait uh, to jump right into this. And the, the thing that you were presenting out at the B Word conference, which I thought was super interesting, demystifying the energy usage of Bitcoin. That's something Tesla shareholder, you know, someone who wants to see climate change get solved. That's like the biggest roadblock or the biggest thing I run into as being a Bitcoin advocate. So I want to start with there and sort of debunk that. Um, and you made some really interesting stats that Bitcoin uses about 0.2%, uh, 0.26% of the world's electricity production. And that it's actually, and this is something that I was confused on earlier. I thought it was tied to the amount of transactions on the network. Like every transaction, a certain amount of energy gets used. So the more transactions, the more energy is going to get used. But that's actually not the case. It's a lot more that the mining is energy intensive. So can you break that down a little bit for us on where the actual you know, energy usage of the Bitcoin network comes in? Yeah, and it's a very common misconception. I'd say you're not alone in that. Um, and I would say like the main problem is just probably the mainstream press coverage. Like, um, and also there's like a few outlets which popularize this per transaction energy cost metric, which is kind of a spurious metric. So basically, like Bitcoin's transactional throughput is just a function of the block space available. So the number of megabytes that are being added to the ledger per unit time. So right now, a typical block will be between, you know, one and a half and maybe two and a half megabytes in size. And of course, you know, people that run the blockchain, um, run a full node, have to store all those uh, new blocks, right? To, you know, have this, you know, full record of all the transactions. And a transaction itself, you know, accounts for a certain number of bytes, you know, a typical transaction might be 300 bytes in size. Um, and so, you know, that's where the constraint on transactions comes from. And, um, you know, there's not any like real prospects for, you know, massively increasing the number of transactions that the Bitcoin network processes. Um, and so then if you look at the minor revenue, like where does their revenue come from, which is what informs the energy that they burn right that's because that's like the budget they can spend on energy kind of correct yeah so like bitcoin provides the security budget to miners and then miners uh spend that revenue on energy is a huge cost for them and then also buying hardware and then you know operating costs uh staff uh you know actually running the running their operations you know physical infrastructure um somewhere between 40 and 60% of their total costs are spent on energy, right? And so the security budget that Bitcoin provides to miners, uh, you know, a good fraction of that gets spent on electricity. And so then the question is like, where does the security budget derive from? And it's basically two sources, right? So one is the new issuance of Bitcoins, right? So every block issues 6.25 Bitcoins and there's around 144 blocks in a day. And then the other thing is, of course, you can pay a fee to get your transactions included in the blockchain. And really, you have to pay a fee these days. And so it's a combination of the subsidy, the issuance of new Bitcoins, and the fees. And the current breakout in terms of minor revenue is around 90-10. So about 90% of their revenue comes from the new issuance of Bitcoins, and about 10% comes from fees. And so with the 10% that comes from fees, you can totally connect that to transactions and say, 
yeah, like to the extent people are willing to pay more to get their transactions included in blocks, that's going to manifest in more minor revenue. And that's going to alter their calculations and cause them to burn more energy, consume more energy. But for the most part, what really matters in terms of Bitcoin's energy cost or the amount that miners spend on energy is the subsidy and the value of that subsidy. And that's really a function of the price of Bitcoin, right? And so as the price of Bitcoin increases, miners um, you know, have this incentive to uh, compete uh, because the value of the reward has gone up. Uh, and so it's really the price increases that affect um, like minor revenue and hence the energy cost. Over the long term, like over the you know, medium to long term, the you know, number of new Bitcoins issued per day is going to decline. Like in three years time, we're going to cut the rate of issuance in half. And then four years subsequently, we're going to cut the rate of issuance in half again until we get to the 21 million uh, limit. Uh, today, I, I believe about 18.7 thereabouts a uh, million Bitcoins have been issued. So we're kind of like 88, 89% done with the issuance. So, you know, over the long term, it is going to move from the subsidy model of security to a fee model of security. Uh, and so eventually fees will account for minor revenue, and then it'll be more closely connected, connected to transactions. But for the next decade, for the next 15 years or so, if you want to reason about the energy cost, it's really a function of just reasoning about the price of Bitcoin. Wow. Okay. Fascinating breakdown. And so if if I was to assume, like, let's just fast forward to the bull case where we're 600 billion of sort of economic momentum now, let's say it goes to 100x, 60 trillion. Let's just assume that happens. Um, <sighs> does that mean we're going to go up about 100x in terms of revenue to 26% of the current world's energy, which I actually think might not be a deal breaker, but I'm curious how you play this out. Like if we're a super Bitcoin bull thinking 10 or 20 years down the road, and this does, the base layer does become the settlement layer replacing central banks. Um, you know, how much of the world's energy is going to have to be required to, to do this or maybe in terawatt hours? Yeah. So in terawatt hours, we're something like uh, 50 to 70 terawatt hours, which is uh, somewhere in the realm. I mean, it changes on a day-to-day -day basis, but somewhere in the realm of 20 to 30 basis points of, um, you know, global energy production. So, you know, a fraction of 1% right now. Um, if it goes up, if the price of Bitcoin goes up by, you know, 100x overnight, um, in theory, you know, miners would have 100x more uh, revenue or close to that. Um, and yes, like the energy uh, cost of the system would massively rise. In practice, they wouldn't be able to 100x their operations immediately, right? Like they'd need new machines, they'd need to locate new sources of energy. So there's there would be like enormous constraints there. Um, but if you are saying it's going to go up by 10 or 100x over the next like two decades, remember that the effect of the price on the energy consumption will be partially offset by the declining, you know, block rewards, right? So um, if let's say you're projecting that it would go up by 100x, you know, over like linearly over the next 20 years, you have to account for five halvings in that period. So you have to account for the issuance of Bitcoin being halved and being halved and being halved. And so that would partially offset the appreciation. Uh, so you have to look at the combination of the issuance rate and the price. Uh, and so it actually depends on like your time horizon for that appreciation. The other thing I'll say is that like, 
Bitcoin doesn't necessarily have to consume from like the stock of energy that is being produced right now. Like Bitcoin miners can and most likely will um, pull new sources of energy uh, into their operations that weren't actually, you know, on grid beforehand. Uh, and, you know, there's a couple interesting sources we can get into there. But basically, um, like if became, Bitcoin became enormously popular, enormously successful, what would happen would be like partially Bitcoin miners would consume grid energy, but also they would look around for these underexploited sources of energy that weren't making it to the grid and they would consume those. So it, it's not simply a matter of saying, oh, you know, if the price of Bitcoin goes up by 20x, we would go from, you know, um, uh, half a percent of energy consumption uh, to, um, you know, 10%. Um, because like um, the world uh, produces a lot more sort of potential energy than actually makes it to the grid. And so like miners would have to look, you know, for those sources. A lot of them would be off-grid sources. Yeah. And you're building perfectly into my next point, which is Bitcoin is a unique energy buyer. And so a lot of this Bitcoin energy would be wasted. Like I loved in your talk, you're like, so why are all these sort of coal uh, plants in China? They were early adopters to start, you know, securing a lot of the hash rate of Bitcoin because they had all this extra energy that was going to waste. And so curtailing, I guess it's called. So they're like, okay, we'll tap into the network. And I think this is something that's super misunderstood about Bitcoin is the unique energy buyer component. And I love the, the paper that Square and ARC put out saying that the energy asset owners of today are the Bitcoin miners of tomorrow. And this is just something like I can't get out of my head. So I'm curious, could you like, like, how do you factor that into the Bitcoin energy debate? It's like, actually, like most of this energy would have been wasted anyway and not used at all. So we're, it's like kind of a misnomer to say that Bitcoin's consuming all this energy. Like it's like taking it from something else when it really just would have been wasted. Right. And I call it uh, non-rival energy, which means energy that isn't necessarily competitive with like household energy or uh, industrial energy. And I think this is the most important thing to understand. Um, so like most people that are familiar with like electricity grids will understand that it doesn't travel well. Like electricity is kind of this local phenomenon. It can't really travel, you know, thousands and thousands of miles unless you've really specialized infrastructure, which is actually um, part of the story here is that China is building that infrastructure to make electricity travel well. Uh, and that's an interesting wrinkle um, that might explain why they banned mining in China, but that's a bit of a digression. Um, the point is that energy has to be produced like relatively, or electricity has to be produced relatively near to where it's actually going to be consumed because of basically Ohm's law, right? Like it's lossy in transport. Uh, and so that's why you get these, um, you know, that's why like grid planners, like put power plants in the places that they do, like near population centers is, is like very common. And that's why you couldn't just lay out a bunch of solar panels in the Sahara and have it like supply the entire world with electricity, it just wouldn't be able to travel, you know, very effectively. And so what happened in China, for instance, is really indicative. So uh, China um, in the last, you know, since Deng, uh, in the 80s, China had this massive industrialization and they pulled, you know, 850 million people out of poverty. It's an amazing, you know, story of urbanization and industrialization, but they also have a centrally planned economy. And so they, they actually ended up massively overbuilding their energy resources. 
Um, and so they had super abundant energy resources in northern provinces. So Xinjiang, which a lot of people will be familiar with for other reasons, and Inner Mongolia, uh, which is a province, not the country of Mongolia, but the Chinese province. Uh, and those were um, solar wind and then a lot of coal. And then uh, in these other provinces in southern China, Yunnan and Sichuan, which are overwhelmingly hydro, because there's huge numbers of rivers that run through there. Uh, and that's where a lot of these dams are. And uh, a lot of this electricity was, you know, actually just not being utilized because those provinces are really not that populated. Um, and the big load centers in China are on the East Coast for the most part. Uh, and so that was kind of this, this trapped or stranded or underutilized energy. And it was that, you know, potential that sort of economic potential that drew all these miners to China, which made, which sort of ensured that in the, you know, over the last decade or so, Bitcoin mining has been this, you know, massively sort of China-based phenomenon until of course, recently, until May of this year when it was banned. Uh, but, you know, Bitcoin mining was kind of like 70% China-based because China had these enormous resources, whether it's coal, wind, solar, hydro, which they just weren't utilizing. And so Bitcoin was the buyer of last resort for that energy. And so, you know, that's an important thing to understand is that there's these, um, you know, asymmetries between supply and demand um, in various grids. And to the extent that there's an over-provisioning of supply, like Bitcoin miners can step in there uh, and account for that supply, which isn't making it to the grid. Yeah. And it's awesome to see that that was sort of a big sort of bear case on Bitcoin was it was too centralized. It was too part of China. So I think this is actually a really good growing up part of the network, the decentralization and maybe Westernization of the network. And tied into that is this idea of Starlink, which obviously Elon fanboy, SpaceX investor. So I love Starlink, but the idea that everyone in the great world could be connected with gigabit internet, how much does that change the decentralization opportunity for Bitcoin? And what could that do for the network? It just means that it's even more viable to mine off-grid um, and in these really remote places. Um, and it is so interesting, like the various ways that Elon has actually or will likely affect the Bitcoin network. I think Starlink is one of the most important ways. Yeah. Um, because there's this increasing trend of people mining Bitcoin in the absolute middle of nowhere. Like I'm talking Siberia, uh, Canada, um, and then like, you know, West Texas um, at these uh, oil wells where there's this flared gas, which isn't being put to use. And so miners started putting the gas in generators and mining Bitcoin on the oil pad in just the middle of nowhere. Uh, and so having satellite internet that's actually reliable is pretty handy in that instance. So that's kind of a really interesting new wrinkle in the story. And okay, let's let's just jump ahead to where my end game of this is, you know, what Tesla is doing with, you know, decentralized and they just announced something in California where you can like turn your power wall on and help stabilize the grid. They want to build this decentralized grid where everybody has their solar roof and their power wall. And so I don't know if it's possible to integrate Bitcoin mining on that small of a scale. But I also wonder if like, you know, setting up mega packs and huge solar farms, like I just, I guess this is kind of all, all over the place, but this idea that the energy asset owners of today are the Bitcoin miners of tomorrow and that the biggest new energy asset owner today creating all the new renewable energy assets is Tesla, or they're like going to be a huge player in this. And so I'm curious if you're thinking like someone like Elon, you know, 
why is Tesla not pushing into every time they set up one of these huge batteries and solar farms, being able to not curtail and have the option to, you know, create Bitcoin or something like it just feels like these worlds of, you know, the monetary system of Bitcoin and the energy system are just colliding more than ever before. And so I just feel like there has to be another big shoe to drop with Tesla uh, involvement in crypto. So if you were Elon, what are you going to do here? What's the product um, or what's the actual business move to sort of capitalize on all of this? Oh, that's a great question. And this actually kind of came up during Elon's discussion with Jack Dorsey and Kathy Wood because, you know, Square and Arc. So kind of Jack and Kathy or their lieutenants of the respective organizations wrote this white paper about the prospects for mining Bitcoin with solar and augmented by batteries, right? And so the problem, of course, with um, solar and wind as renewable inputs into mining is that they're more intermittent than thermal energy. They're less predictable and they have a lower capacity factor. Uh, which means they're just not producing all the time. And so with Bitcoin miners, they want to run their machines all the time because otherwise there's a huge opportunity cost. So to sort of be economical, they have to have a lot of you know high levels of uptime. So historically, you haven't seen a ton of mining with pure wind or pure solar, um, but the inclusion of batteries changes the game there. As batteries become more economical at scale, which obviously Tesla is like pushing the envelope on, that potentially makes the economics work. Uh, so like the cost function for solar and wind, you can look at the Lazard levelized cost of energy charts, which are some of my favorite charts out there. They show solar and wind over the last decade coming down in their price per kilowatt hour to the point where they're effectively competitive or you know even cheaper than most conventional sources of generation. You know, the caveat there, of course, is this intermittency uh, capacity factor point that I mentioned as batteries come down. And I think there's a law called rights law, which um, I believe ARC has written about where um, there's a relationship between capital deployed into technology and the efficiency of that technology. So as rights law takes effect for batteries and we get these cost, you get this efficiency improvement in terms of the cost of batteries. If you pair that with wind and solar, then you start to get like an energy package, which is cheap and is being delivered at the right sort of um, the like right periodicity, like the right kind of frequency uh, that it's suitable for mining. I don't know if we're there yet, but Elon actually reacted to this in, in the B word talk he had, and he mentioned kind of a portfolio of wind, solar, and batteries. And I'm starting to think that that really is plausible. Um, so I think what I would do would be like, to the extent that Tesla actually gets into, um, I would say like utility scale generation, that would be an instance where you could bring in a couple shipping containers full of miners uh, for these new energy assets, even before they're grid connected or even before the grid is fully drawing from them, uh, Bitcoin would be the marginal energy buyer in that instance. Um, and then maybe as they get fully grid integrated, you have less of a need for it. But I think that would be the first thing I would think about. If you have energy assets that are renewable and they're generating electricity on a you know, decent curve, um, then I think um, you'd, you'd let you, there's an opportunity to sort of contract with owners of um, 
ASICs, you know, the Bitcoin mining machines, um, and bring that in to sort of improve the economics and the payback period of that new energy asset. Yeah, it's incredibly exciting. And I was holding up this uh, battery. It's like a replica of the 4680 battery cell that Tesla's working on, which is like basically that whole battery day announcement was to me them creating a skunk works of R&D for the battery industry, lower cost, you know, some are up performance, but essentially the pace of innovation in batteries in terms of cost and production and just moving the needle forward on Wright's law. Like somebody's actually got to build the factory for Wright's law to exist. That's what Tesla's doing in Austin, which ironically is such a catalyst for renewable energy happening on Bitcoin. Like Tesla is like manifesting this by bringing this technology forward. And I just want to, what you were saying is so interesting. It's like, okay, well, we need batteries to hit a certain price point and solar and wind. But what if there's like two, it's it's not just for Bitcoin mining and it's not just for stabilizing the grid, but it's for both. And that's where maybe the ROI happens faster. So to me, it's just a matter of time before we see Tesla set up another one of these mega grid projects and say, we're also going to have a couple ASICs on site and be doing this. And then we're also increasing the amount of renewable energy on the Bitcoin network, which is Elon's whole beef with it. So um, I just think this is, this is what, like, it just seems to me like this is such a big piece of news that like, I don't know, does it make you hyped or not? Or like, do you think Tesla's actually kind of moving the needle on the Bitcoin network as a whole by single-handedly bringing this technology to the forefront? So, I mean, I take a cautious attitude to these things, but like, I will say Elon has already had a very significant impact on the sustainability of the Bitcoin network, um, just through his own statements, frankly. Um, so, you know, Bitcoin miners in the US have responded to Elon's kind of challenge. And since he first made his points about Bitcoin having too high a carbon intensity, I mean, there were some exogenous shocks like miners left China which was very, very helpful <laughs> because, you know, they're going to be onshoring into new domiciles where the, they, the grid just fundamentally is a lower carbon intensity than China. Um, so that was one thing which obviously Elon didn't have influence over. But, um, you know, what I'm seeing from, you know, larger, especially publicly traded and more accountable U.S. and North America miners is they're disclosing their energy mix, which is what Elon asked for. Um, they're pursuing just you know, they're actually going out and looking for renewable energy inputs and in some cases buying offsets. I know people are mixed on offsets, um, but I think it can't hurt at least. Uh, and so they have reacted like the Bitcoin Mining Council was formed, has a whole bunch of miners, probably 32% of hash rate uh, is sort of involved in that. Um, and so, yeah, like Elon's statements alone, you know, already moved the needle. And then um, I think bring down the, 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 the cost of batteries, that's the number one thing that we need to unlock wind and solar as relevant power inputs for Bitcoin mining. Wind and solar are already cheap enough that you know if they had a high enough capacity factor, they would be totally competitive in terms of inputs for miners. Um, like you're looking at you know, utility scale um, photovoltaic coming in at like three cents a kilowatt hour which is incredibly, incredibly cheap. Um, offshore wind is also, you know, very, very competitive. Uh, for context, like your average Bitcoin miner is probably mining at like six or seven cents a kilowatt hour. Uh, and so if you can make these energy assets competitive in terms of their generation profile, which is what batteries are necessary for, then, you know, it's very promising. So yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic about that. Awesome. Can we keep going a little bit if I go rapid fire or do you got to? 
no, I actually, uh, I don't have anything the rest of the afternoon. So yeah, by all means. Okay. Awesome. So, so I'm kind of fast forwarding this in my brain. Let's say it does happen. Bitcoin does go renewable. You know, Tesla starts reaccepting Bitcoin to me, Tesla adding Bitcoin to their balance sheet was another huge sort of first principles move of actually increasing the value and utility of the network. Cause they weren't really a FinTech or payment company that was doing it. So super forward thinking. And I think Apple, Facebook, Amazon, a lot of other big tech is strategizing. How can we add Bitcoin to our balance sheet without it being an intangible asset and messing up our gap income statement, which is such a dumb BS bureaucratic reason for them not to buy Bitcoin, but I think that's what's happening. And so I'm curious sure. on like what I love this Bitcoin FOMO apocalypse theory. Maybe you read about it on Reddit a while ago, where like central banks basically have this FOMO of like, oh my God, like, you know, this uh, country, El Salvador, is starting to use Bitcoin. So now we got to buy Bitcoin. Central banks all start buying it. And I think that can be translated to also corporate treasuries having like a Bitcoin FOMO apocalypse theory. And it's like, bro, if you're Apple and you start integrating Bitcoin, that could double the value of Bitcoin alone. So why wouldn't you be buying Bitcoin right now and then integrate it into your products and services? Maybe that's a little bit too scammy, but I'm just curious on, to me, the game theory of Bitcoin gets really fascinating because it seems like it feels like we're already at the runaway rate where it's like Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk, Kathy Wood, like these big people are endorsing it. It's working at scale. Like it seems kind of like it's starting to be inevitable. And I wonder if you kind of subscribe to this FOMO theory that will happen, like who's the next shoe to drop? And does, is there a domino effect occurring of central banks and large companies really moving into this in a big way? Well, we've seen it on corporate balance sheets, of course, and that was another piece of news that was overlooked from the B Word conference is that it's on SpaceX's balance sheet, which we yeah, didn't know I love before. That. We and for some reason people aren't talking about that, but that's I believe a third, you know, public company in the S and P five hundred now that uh, well they're not holds public, Bitcoin. Ah, right? uh, they're not public. Okay, there we go. That's the caveat. Um, but yeah, thirds are you know very major. Um, well. There's there's actually a whole bunch now, uh, if we're including private. But yeah, I mean, you know, Tesla and MicroStrategy were the other big public companies holding Bitcoin. So that's an addition to the roster. Um, in terms of central banks, you know, I think it makes a ton of sense for them to eventually have exposure to Bitcoin because they all, for the most part, all the major ones have exposure to gold. And some people think gold is a sort of like backwards, like relic of the past type thing. But if you actually look at what they're doing is central banks are accumulating gold um, because we're in the, you know, we're in this monetary transition where, uh, and it happens every hundred years or so where the dominant, uh, you know, superpower like seeds some ground. And in our case, it's the U S the U S is kind of like structurally withdrawing from the international system. And they're just not as equipped to manage the entire monetary system. And so, Central banks since 2014 have been divesting U.S. treasuries. They've been selling U.S. treasuries. And um, a lot of them have been accumulating gold. If you look at Russia, look at China, they've been accumulating gold and other assets. Uh, and so, you know, like gold is still this relevant thing. And of course, I tend to believe Bitcoin is a far, far superior asset to gold if you really go down to first principles. Um, but it just shows me that central banks still have this appetite for a portfolio of assets and they're trying to protect themselves against volatility and uh, the devaluation of the dollar. And uh, you know, a lot of us are looking at these stats about the money supply growth of the dollar and it's really, really aggressive. Uh, and if you look at what you know, the issuance of new dollars is you know, being used for, it's being used for handouts to Americans. And there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, that's like the Congress and the Fed's prerogative, right? Like, um, 
But but if you're a foreign holder of dollars, you're exposed to the inflation from that issuance and you're not reaping the benefits of that inflation because it's all just being used for basically transfer payments to Americans. And so if you listen to President Bukele, president of El Salvador, you know, part of his justification for diversifying their portfolio away from just dollars and starting to include Bitcoin is this exact phenomenon. Uh, that's what he, that was one of his justifications. Uh, and so, you know, central banks all have this exposure to U.S. treasuries and U.S. debt, but, you know, we're dealing with a Fed that's very, very aggressive in terms of issuance uh, that sees its mandate as being broader and broader by the day. Uh, and so, yeah, I think, you know, they're starting to think critically, like, do we want exposure to the dollar, to the Fed uh, and to their credibility? Uh, and so, so far, gold has been their primary answer. But to the extent Bitcoin starts to get closer to the market cap of gold, gold is worth about 10 to $11 trillion in the aggregate. That's all the above ground gold in the world. About half of that is jewelry and a smaller fraction is central bank holdings. So to the extent we get to that size or you know, even get to a third of that size, I think central banks start thinking, okay, well, what's my share of the gold that I own, and maybe I should just try and match that share in Bitcoin, right? So what percentage of all the world's gold do I own? And let me see if I can accumulate that percentage in Bitcoin, just as an insurance policy effectively. Um, if Bitcoin does look like it's really going to threaten gold as the you know, preeminent non-state monetary asset. So I don't know how long that transition is going to take, but I'm, there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever that central banks will eventually accumulate Bitcoin um, because Bitcoin is basically threatening gold status as you know the most important non-state monetary asset out there. And the importance of non-state monetary assets has never been higher with fiat collapsing, so to speak. So that's what makes it so interesting. It's like, what are the forward-thinking companies like Tesla doing? They're not buying any gold. It's all Bitcoin. So it, to me, it's already like this 20X already seems inevitable in fiat. And like, I, I like to call it the awakening where it's just like, people are like, why am I holding this thing called the dollar? Why is all our economic wealth in this fiat system that was the gold standard, but now it's not? Now the only thing really backing it, this is kind of a weird conspiracy theory, is like the military, like your El Salvador, like I don't want to mess too much pissing you us off because they have a huge military. So that does back <laughs> the dollar in some ways. But um, it feels like to me, like the system of the dollar is breaking and fiat is collapsing. Maybe it's not a means of payment, but as a store of wealth. And there's an accelerating dilution spiral. And would you talk about the stats around that? Like, how do you put that into perspective? Is that something that you see just continually accelerating? To me, it's like we press the button and gave Americans money and we're keeping pre to press that button. Like, I feel like it just gets easier to press that button now that it's, it's happened. UBI was such a fringe idea two years ago. Now it's happening. So yeah, we have UBI. We have UBI in the US. I mean, um, if you look at the data, like um, I think transfer payments, as in like handouts in various forms, whether it's unemployment assistance or like uh, just the handouts that we saw to Americans, that's something like 22% of GDP right now um, in the US. Uh, government expenditure as a share of GDP is like in the 30s range. It's been way, way below that historically. Um, you know, like the debt to GDP ratio in the US is something preposterous, like 130%. Um, our deficit is, you know, at its highest rate since I think World War II. Uh, you know, money supply growth 
peaked at 27% for M2, which is a broader measure of money supply last year. Right now, it's something like 13%. Uh, and so basically, all of the numbers, all of the numbers, and we've obviously, we've negative real interest rates, which means that if you hold a government security like a three-month treasury bill, um, you are uh, mathematically guaranteed to lose money if you hold that instrument to maturity, mathematically guaranteed. Uh, and you know that's considered the gold standard. That's like considered the most risk-free asset. So um, you're guaranteed to lose money on that. Uh, and that's one thing Elon actually said. Uh, the B word is like uh, in in Europe, Tesla's accounts are losing money because they've negative interest rates in Europe too. Uh, and so if you just hold money in the bank account, you're effectively being charged a fee to hold it. So you're not being paid to store your savings with the bank anymore. It's quite the contrary you're paying someone to store your money for you, which is a complete reversal for, you know, we've had in the last 5,000 years of history, basically. So, you know, I don't fault anyone that begins to bear the cost of negative interest rates and starts to look and, you know, try and consider how they could possibly diversify their portfolio, whether it's real estate, equities, gold, or something like Bitcoin. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, basically, we're at the tail end of this enormous debt cycle. Uh, and what happened after the last really big one, um, when everyone was incredibly indebted after World War II, was inflation in the US got cranked up really, really high, and interest rates were held at effectively zero. And so, um, you, you know, you, anyone that held, uh, you know, US government bonds lost money in real terms over the next couple of decades. Uh, and some people refer to that as monetary repression. Uh, and so, you know, myself and I, a lot of people that I respect believe that this is happening again. Uh, and what do you do when you want to escape monetary repression? Well, you just hold your savings in something that the government can't really directly control, can't devalue. Uh, and, you know, for me, that's Bitcoin. Uh, and I think, you know, Elon obviously recognizes that and, and a lot of other entrepreneurs do as well. And do you think this is something that will happen smoothly over decades, the transition to Bitcoin? Or is there a, a risk of some sort of, you know, geopolitical event where like the dollar loses power? Like this is a really, really big concept, right? And to me, it's like as a Bitcoin OG, when it was like 5 billion network value, it's like, I hope we get one day to where like the US government shutting us down is the bear case. But now it's like actually, you know, if we're talking about the 600 billion to 60 trillion, to me, government saying like, whoa, is, is one of the biggest bear cases. Do you think about that at all? Yeah, I mean, and, and like, frankly, what's happening right now, if you look at the regulation, is there is a government reprisal against Bitcoin and the rest of the crypto sector. That's happening as we speak. That's happening right now. Centralized exchanges are being targeted. Most likely DeFi will be targeted in the next few months. China already had their reprisal against crypto. They basically tried to stem the flow of renminbi to crypto flows. They tried to cut that off, and that was part of their mining ban. Uh, the U.S. is going to probably take a slightly more delicate tack, but um, you know, expect something from them too. So we're living through the reprisal right now, and uh, despite all that, Bitcoin is you know still like holding pretty firm at you know thirty-two thousand or whatever it is, which is pretty impressive in my mind. But you know, the thing that goes alongside that is nation states are you know heterogeneous, and they're going to have different reactions to crypto and to Bitcoin. Uh, and so some of them will be you know, super hostile and then some of them will recognize the opportunity. The fact that there's a ton of wealth in this asset class, a ton of really dynamic entrepreneurs that are globally mobile 
and they can move their assets to friendly jurisdictions. And so that's part of El Salvador's pitch. They want to bring Bitcoiners to the country. They want to bring entrepreneurs to the country. So they embrace Bitcoin. Uh, and you know, there's other jurisdictions that are super friendly from a tax perspective and have been effectively making this pitch to Bitcoiners, even within the US, like Mayor Suarez in Miami is making this pitch to Bitcoiners. Uh, and so you get these like distinct reactions. In some cases, like regulatory authorities are really, really harsh and they're trying to push Bitcoin activity outside. But then, you know, other countries and other local jurisdictions like see this as an opportunity and like, well, we can get this tax base, we can get these really dynamic entrepreneurs and, you know, this wealth, which is now being stored in the form of this asset, we can bring it to our shores. And so that's kind of my, my view on what's going to happen next is you'll just have a very heterogeneous set of reactions to it at the nation state level. And there will be some places that explicitly become havens and create, you know, special crypto economic zones, things like that. Yeah. And it's like, do we want to be on offense here or defense and like protect our fiat or just go on offense and say, let's risk it and accept Bitcoin. It seems like, and, and to me, this is actually a bullish part of Bitcoin that we got so big that nation states are acknowledging the threat and are trying to stop it. To me, that's almost like subconsciously a validation of how big the potential and how successful it could be. Um, is there, I also want to switch this coin metrics thing. You have an amazing site with metrics about Bitcoin. What are the, you mentioned in your talk, uh, the one metric was like 600 billion. That's the network value, 10 to 20 billion move per day on the network. Um, what are the KPIs that you're looking at to understand sort of the first principles of the Bitcoin network and how it's growing? There's so many. Um, one I would look at would be the amount of value that's um, active on the Lightning Network, which is a overlay network, which is more payments focused network built on top of Bitcoin. Uh, and it's actually been parabolic lately. I don't know the reason why, frankly, but uh, it's been increasing really quickly. Um, I would also look at, um, of course, the transaction value, and those are just estimates, but you know, for a measure of the vibrancy of the Bitcoin economy. Um, I would look at the number of unique addresses holding various quantities of Bitcoin. You can actually kind of see the trajectory of user growth uh, in that way. Although like a lot of users hold Bitcoin through proxies like at exchanges and you know custodians. So it's not gonna give you a reliable number indicating how many users specifically use Bitcoin, but it will give you an indication of the trend. And so you always wanna see Bitcoin getting dispersed into more people's hands uh, and you especially want to see it in smaller and smaller wallets. That suggests that more retail holders are, you know, getting involved in the system. Uh, so I look at that. I also look at, um, you know, what share of units of Bitcoin have been active in the last year, the last six months. Um, and you see these cycles coinciding with the market price. Uh, and so it's like a very, very fascinating interplay. Um, and then, you know, you look at the quantity of Bitcoins on exchanges. Uh, and as that drops, you know, that's indicative of people taking custody of, uh, of their Bitcoins and uh, holding them directly. And of course, that's a much more genuine way of interacting with the protocol than holding it at an exchange. Uh, and, you know, that's a much more resilient way of holding it because that way it's much harder for the state to, you know, seize your assets or, you know, identify you or anything like that. Uh, and so, yeah, those are kind of some of the key ones I look at. So am I a noob for holding all my Bitcoin and Coinbase and not having, I want to send like one or two to like a hardware wallet, but what's, what's your take on this? Cause I think this is super, 
it kind of divides a lot of people in the Bitcoin community. I'm like, things like Coinbase are great for getting people into it. And like, I want, like, I don't, I lose everything. I can't even find my keys when I try to leave my house, like my real keys, you know, like, I don't know if I want to be responsible for my Bitcoin key. Um, so what, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, for, you know, newcomers to the system, like, I think Coinbase makes a ton of sense, or I personally prefer like Cash App, you know, I think Jack is like totally aligned with us um, philosophically. Um, and, you know, like the, the major like Bitcoin custodians exchanges are like pretty credible in this country, at least, you know, so um, I think they're like quite trustworthy. Ultimately, though, you only have a claim on a Bitcoin. You don't, you know, directly own a Bitcoin. If something happens to the exchange, you might find that your claim is not redeemable for, you know, a whole Bitcoin. Um, now, I don't expect Coinbase to fail by any means, but there's definitely benefits to holding your Bitcoin directly. It's like the difference between holding a ETF in a, uh, you know, gold ETF, like the spider gold ETF, and then having a literal, you know, bullion bar in your you know, garage or something. Um, and so some people prefer to self-custody, I think for privacy's sake and uh, for like personal resiliency's sake, uh, not being beholden to some institution is better. Now, in terms of actually how you instrumentalize self-custody, like I find a lot of the hardware wallets to be like pretty good and pretty reliable, but it is this burden to store your keys. Um, and then in many cases, people you know, inscribe their keys on like a block of metal and then they go ahead and put that in a safety deposit box. So it kind of ends up back in the bank. Um, but there's also other approaches. You can use like multi-sig setups whereby, you know, you have multiple hardware wallets and in different locations and you have to assign a transaction on two out of three wallets or three out of five. And that way you can, you know, store your Bitcoin assets um, in this like really resilient and flexible way that, you know, is very unlikely for you to lose it because you can lose a wallet, or, you know, you lose one of your hardware devices and still be able to make a spend. So that's like my personal favorite, but it is, it's a lot of work to kind of like actually do that. Yeah. I'm just imagining like the, the world apocalypse happens. Everyone has these weird hardware wallets. Like it's such a crazy sci-fi movie reality. Okay. And last thing I, I wanted to cover, I know I'm way over time, but Jack Dorsey, your boy, Jack, this is I think he is like the biggest catalyst or one of the biggest catalysts, Elon and Jack Dorsey for Bitcoin. Like he owns Square and Cash App and this new thing to basically, it sounds like create a hardware wallet or some sort of wallet where you own the keys, which would be different than Coinbase. I think this is a huge, like people were always getting on me like, yeah, I can't believe you just got a bunch of, like I moved all my weird ETH like coins into Bitcoin, like basically concentrated my Bitcoin position after the B word talk, just because I was like, Oh my God. Like I feel like, and it wasn't a FOMO emotional move. Like I've owned Bitcoin for eight years. I feel like it was like that Warren Buffett quote of like, you know, yeah, I invested mm. in Goldman Sachs in the recession in two minutes, but this was like a 50 year decision. So I feel like that was my Bitcoin thing. Like I've been thinking about this for eight years and now I'm all in. Cause I'm like, wow, like this catalyst of Jack Dorsey bringing Bitcoin to the masses seems like a huge fundamental catalyst for the Bitcoin network. And, um, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. I mean, I think Jack is the most philosophically aligned, you know, like major public market CEO that exists. And, you know, there are public market CEOs of explicitly Bitcoin companies, but I put Jack above them, <laughs> to be clear. Uh, I think his understanding of Bitcoin is just stellar. Um, and everything he said about it to date makes sense to me. And then his 
his actions also seem to be strongly accretive to the Bitcoin network. Like Square created Square Crypto, which funds a lot of Bitcoin core developers. They created the um, Clean Energy Initiative, which I'm an advisor to. I'm involved in that. Uh, and so, you know, Jack is also pushing to decarbonize Bitcoin mining. Um, Square itself is a gigantic force for financial inclusion, even before Bitcoin is considered. Like he he lives and breathes financial inclusion. Um, like that's even prior to his interest in Bitcoin. Uh, and so the fact that they're most likely going to incorporate Bitcoin into Square, it's not clear exactly how yet. I've also seen uh, rumors about it being incorporated into Twitter too. Um, you know, that's incredibly exciting. And then, you know, this new um, idea that uh, they're going to create an open source hardware wallet for Bitcoin is really important because like we kind of need heterogeneity. Um, there's like, here's, here's a uh, cold card. Um, I've got like two other uh, hardware wallets uh, on the shelf here as well. Like there's only like three major brands of hardware wallets. Uh, there's like uh, cold card, uh, ledger and Trezor. Those are the most popular ones. Um, we need more heterogeneity there. We need more diversity, basically. Uh, I don't want to be dependent on a single manufacturer because it's so important that, uh, you know, these things are like, you know, robust and secure. Uh, so getting into that game. And then I think Jack also said he's going to try and create uh, decentralized finance initiatives on Bitcoin. Now, also what that entails is not clear to me, but um, everything he's doing is like probably what I would do if, you know, I was in his position. Uh, so I have nothing but respect for the guy. And it seems like the Twitter thing is inevitable to me because he was talking about how payments are really hard between different countries. And then like it and then this open blue sky protocol for Twi for new sort of social media. To me, it seems like he and maybe this hardware wallets related to it. He's setting up a way to put in Bitcoin payments natively to Twitter somehow. I know like he's got to want to do that. Right. And to me, that almost seems like a bigger potential catalyst than Cash App. Um, so I'm super excited about that. And then what you said about the decentralized finance, he's trying to build DeFi on Bitcoin. So does that mean they're going to compete with ETH? Can you help me unpack those two things? Yeah, and we don't know what DeFi on Bitcoin is going to look like because historically Bitcoin has been more limited in terms of the types of transactions you could create. The good news is that Bitcoin's had some recent protocol upgrades, which give it more flexibility. So in theory, you could build, for instance, a decentralized derivative on Bitcoin, whereby you, um, you know, uh, collateralize a position, get a dollar denominated um, output from that just solely by holding Bitcoin. And so that would be one, one you know, concept there. Or you could um, you know, create an options trade just using Bitcoin uh, transactions. Uh, and so like, there's a lot of scope for innovation there. We haven't really seen you know, a lot of this implemented in practice because Bitcoin you know, evolves at a reasonably uh, slow pace. Uh, but what we do know now is that like there is a big market for decentralized finance that's clearly been evidenced by ETH and other smart contract blockchains. The difference is that to the extent Bitcoin does it, it'll be like definitely secure and we're not going to make trade-offs in terms of security uh, in order to move quickly. And that's always been the Bitcoin philosophy is like make sure the underlying base layer is as sound as possible, uh, is not moving too quickly so that we can make sure it's bug-free. And you know we'll eventually get there. Uh, so I don't know, you know, precisely whether Bitcoin DeFi would involve side chains or it would involve Lightning or you know new transaction types. 
Um, but I think that's definitely part of the Bitcoin stack. I see it as, you know, pretty, pretty key to the Bitcoin thesis too. And almost inevitable that Jack is innovating in that area and will bring these to fruition, which is going to like boom the network. Or that's kind of my theory, but, um, all right, we, we can wrap it up there, dude. This was so incredibly informative and like, thank you so much for the time. I feel like you're a legend in the making. I know you don't like BitClout, but if I, if you were doing BitClout and I could invest in you, I totally would. <laughs> um, but do you well, have anything? They made they made a bit clout for me and then someone uh, emailed them and deleted my bit clout page because apparently that's the thing you could do. And so they just posed as me and deleted my bit clout. Um, and I think my account was worth like 150 K. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I wasn't going to redeem it anyway, but that kind of cracked me up. <laughs> so anyway, my, I think my bit clout page is gone. So. Okay. Okay. Good to know. But um, I, anyway, everyone should definitely follow you. Do you have any shout outs you want to give like coin metrics? I'll put a link to your Twitter as well. Um, or any final thoughts on Bitcoin or anything like that? Um, yeah, I mean, if you're interested in a longer form version of uh, our comments uh, here, especially on Bitcoin and energy, um, you know, watch my talk at uh, the B word. Um, I put a lot of work into it. Uh, that's actually kind of the summation of my last 18 months worth of exploration on this topic. Um, and, um, I have, um, you know, a big paper dropping in a month or two on that exact topic too. Uh, and so, you know, I think that Bitcoiners, you know, it's part of our job to sort of explain these things to the press and to the public and policymakers. We haven't done a great job of it so far. Uh, and so I'm trying to change that. Um, but yeah, also like a resource I really like is the Cambridge, um, Center for Alternative Finance. They have a Bitcoin energy index, which I think is really, really well done. And uh, the Bitcoin Mining Council, I know they get a lot of flack in the Bitcoin community. They also produce some really interesting disclosures in terms of what Bitcoin miners in North America are doing for their energy input. So those are two good resources I like on the topic. Awesome. Definitely going to check those out. And I feel like I owe you one because you're saying to help educate, like you've taught me so much just following your content and stuff and from this talk. So thank you for that. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for the time. Have a great day. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, man. Great to chat.